Welcome to Season 2 of History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice-cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, welcome back, boys and girls. We are uh, in the fourth of the podcasts from Gettysburg. And just like last week, uh, we are back in the home offices here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We spent those first two podcasts over in Gettysburg when we talked about the history of slavery. Uh, We talked about the causes of the Civil War. And last week, we talked about slavery during the Civil War, and we were talking about the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, We brought in the, excuse me, we brought in the Gettysburg Address, and we brought the whole way, I think, to the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. This week is going to be the final part of our four-part series on slavery and race uh, with the Civil War. And this one is the Reconstruction Era and the Legacy of the Civil War. And always across from me is Dr. Jeffrey Hudson. Um, Jeff, today, I think last week was Oktoberfest. Um, I think this week we're sort of doing a miscellaneous thing, right? Um, you brought with us just a mishmash of different kinds of beers. I'm drinking an Einstock Icelandic white ale. I like it. I know that you don't. You haven't tried this one before, I don't think. No, I haven't. But I like a white beer, like Belgian beers or... A lot of times, wait. Is that a good one? It is. Ale brewed with coriander and orange peel, and has a little Viking on it there. And so, yeah, I'm enjoying it. What you got over there? I got uh, the Victory Summer Love Ale. I guess it's the last of the Summer Love Ale here, and it's it's pretty good too. It's uh, it's uh, has a hoppy taste, but not it's not an IPA. All right, it's something that even you could live with and enjoy. I thought you were looking at me with with through. Uh, well, big yeah. eyes and making eyes with me. Now it's a, it's a, it's still left over summer actually, love. Well, yeah, left. That's it. What movie has the song "Summer Love"? Man, I don't know. Greece. Does Sum, it? Summer Love with okay. uh, Olivia Newton-John and um, uh, John Travolta. John Travolta. Tra- Travolta. Yeah. There you go. There you go. All, All right. right. So we have a. Uh, there's our, our our homage to our beers. Today, uh, let's jump right into this podcast. Um, this the war ends. Uh, Lincoln is assassinated. Andrew Johnson comes into office, and we've spent some time talking about Andrew Johnson and Lincoln. So I want to kind of get past that and talk a little bit about Reconstruction. Uh, the Reconstruction period is typically, if, from historical perspectives, from 1865 to 1877. It's very specific to 1877, and we'll talk a little bit about that once we get to that year. Reconstruction is the idea of bringing the Southern states back into the Union. Um, and what, how, how's that going to take place? And there's differing opinions on this. Lincoln's idea was that these states never left a Union. So um, they were simply states in rebellion. So it isn't really necessary to have the uh, laundry list of things they need to do. We can simply readmit them pretty quickly. And he had a pretty loose idea of Reconstruction. Radical Republicans in Congress did not believe that. And after Lincoln's assassination, the radical Republicans in Congress are going to take control of Reconstruction, and they are going to split the South into five um, districts um, organized with uh, military districts under federal troops. I think almost 30,000 troops are going to be dispatched to the Southern areas to monitor Reconstruction. We have the 13th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments on the books. 
uh, in attempts to sort of pave the way for liberty for freed slaves. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau is passed over a veto from Andrew Johnson. The Freedmen's Bureau was designed. It's really an early attempt at, I don't want to use the term welfare because that's a horrible term to use, of government assistance maybe? Is that what you would talk oh, about? Yeah, I think there's government help. I mean, people in slavery didn't have anything. Right. They, yeah. they couldn't read. They couldn't write. Right. Um, the Freedmen's Bureau had different levels of success, though they were pretty good at educating and setting up Freedmen's schools. The Civil Rights Act of 1866 was passed. So it really looked like um, the road had been set uh, that – Reconstruction was going to take place. At the end of this reconstruction, African-Americans were going to have some limited say uh, in the voting booth and have be protected by due process. Well, right. And we have the election of black officials. I think right. the first black senator gets elected in South Carolina. Is that Hiram Rebels? Is yes. that his name? Mm-hmm. And, and so there, in fact, there is some, it's, you know, nowadays they would call this social engineering. But there is some successful social engineering, but it's done under the watchful eye of federal troops. Right. The Republicans, the uh, Republican uh, government, 2,000 African-Americans held office during Reconstruction. Oh, that's that's great. So I didn't, um, I didn't know it was that many. I knew. We said the first African-American governor, um, to give you an idea, the second African-American governor in the United States won't be elected until 1989. So it really appeared that um, Reconstruction was going to be successful. Uh, what they did not anticipate is the absolute hatred of freed slaves the, that would permeate in the South. So historians have struggled here. Is Reconstruction a success or is it a failure? Well, it's a success in the idea that it brought the country together. Uh, it brought the South back into the Union. It was a failure in the sense that African-Americans were going to be brought in eventually as equal partners uh, with white their white counterparts. That didn't happen. No, the, and, and, and the Constitution wasn't followed. No. The 14th Amendment uh, is drawn on as well as the 15th Amendment. And the Southerners, uh, the Democratic Southerners, were simply able to outweigh, in a way, the re- Reconstruction governments. And what became known as Redeemer governments slowly came into existence in the South. Um, we had black codes in the South. We had the KKK and violence. Um, the number of deaths varies. You can, it, it's, it's in the thousands. You could even see numbers as high as 50,000 deaths uh, during the Reconstruction era, uh, violent deaths against African and freed slaves, um, just to keep, quote unquote, people in their place. The South, this is sort of a paradox here, the South actually even came back into the federal government with more power than they left because they left with the, when they left, the three-fifths clause was in effect. Now that slaves were freed, they actually got more representation in Congress. So the South actually comes back into the Union, losing the war, but they come back with more federal power. Then in 1873, there's a financial panic. Um... And this really takes the air out of the Reconstruction balloon. Northerners are now becoming tired of Reconstruction. The troop levels in the South have gone from the high 28, 29,000 down to less than 5,000. Some numbers will give you as low as 2,500. Um, just the idea of having troops down there now 10, 15 years, uh, well, not, not 15, 10 years after the war, it was grinding on the South. And 
this sets up for a compromise that's going to take place in 1877, right. where Reconstruction will officially end. Right, and and that, like everything else, is in, intertwined with politics. And uh, I think everybody knows that electoral votes uh, actually elect the president, and sometimes the popular vote uh, winner will not win the presidency. Well, this happened... Uh, in 1876, there was a Democrat, Samuel J. Tilden of New York, and he beat Rutherford B. Hayes in the popular vote. And he actually got 184 electoral votes to Hayes's 165. So he had 19 votes. But there were 20 votes that were uncounted. And these 20 electoral votes that were uh, in dispute were in South Carolina, Louisiana, and for followers of politics, yes, Florida. <laughs> they didn't know which way they're going to give the uh, electoral votes to. Uh, finally, the 20 disputed electoral votes were given to Hayes. In other words, those electors of those states voted for Hayes. Now, most historians believe there was a little informal uh, deal going on uh, while this was being argued about. And you might have noticed all those states, Florida, Louisiana, South Carolina, were in the South. Why would those electors vote for the Republican Hayes? Maybe well, a promise to do something? Yeah. They think that there was a quid pro quo and that Hayes would sign off on the end of Reconstruction, which is exactly what happened. So in 1877, the Republicans agreed to withdraw all federal troops from the South. Now— this is going to leave um, the relatively newly freed slaves there in a terrible position and at the mercy of the Democrat Redeemer governments in the South. And they're going to reinstitute, uh, they can't reinstitute slavery because of the 13th Amendment, but they're, they're going to reinstitute uh, something called Jim Crow that we'll, we'll talk about. But here's another great turning point. I think this is a sad, sad thing. Because here you have Rutherford B. Hayes, who was actually a Union soldier. He actually had been in some of the big battles in the Civil War. And you had the Republican Party, the Party of Lincoln. And, you know, there were, and Lincoln had made the Civil War a, a, a crusade to end slavery by the end of the war. And also he did have some, as, as we talked about, some ideas about uh, a man's, uh, the, the ability of uh, this, uh, the black troops who had fought for the Union to vote and so forth. See, they're turning back, they're, and they had passed the 14th and 15th Amendment, and they turned their back on them. Right. They turned their back on them. And, and to me, this is, you know, it's, it's shameful to the legacy of Lincoln. Also, the soldiers, uh, you know, had fought and, and, and died, and the, the northern soldiers who had, uh, who by the time of the Battle of Gettysburg, this had become one of the causes uh, that they fought for. So this is to me, this is a sad time, but this is what happens. Right. So is Reconstruction a success or a failure? Well, it really depends on what you believe Reconstruction would set out to do. If Reconstruction was set out to simply reunite the country, then absolutely the Reconstruction era is a success because the country is reunited. If you believe Reconstruction was twofold, number one, to reunite the country, and second, to bring African Americans in as equal partners, then absolutely Reconstruction was a failure. I personally believe that Reconstruction is a failure. It is a lost chance 
to fight the battle we needed to fight. Um, the fight that we have in the 1950s and 60s should have been fought in the 1860s and 70s with the full power of the federal government. I think one of the problems, and I think really the main reason for failure is that the federal government did not have the infrastructure necessary to carry out what they needed to do. To have the widespread government programs in the South to protect Southern and Blacks, um, they simply didn't have the infrastructure to do it. They didn't have the manpower to do it. They didn't have the money to do it. And they didn't have the willpower either. And they didn't have the willpower, absolutely. So all of those things combined, uh, it is a very sort of depressing, um, you, you had this sort of high watermark of, uh, in the Gettysburg Address where Lincoln talks about freedom, um, and we think we're going to achieve something. And then by 1880, all those dreams are dashed. Um, you know, the Klan comes into play. You know, as you mentioned, slavery was outlawed and there was no way slavery was going to be legal again. But you have to remember that, that the slave system was a two-tiered system. It was a labor system, and that's obvious, but it was also a social system where it kept blacks into a certain level of society, and that was at the bottom. And Southerners, um, though they could not institute slavery, they could they could keep that social system alive and keep freed slaves and other blacks at the bottom of the social ladder. And that is where the Klan and violence comes in, um, keeping – you know. How did they keep them from voting? I mean, the 15th Amendment clearly says you have the right to vote, but there's all clever ways that you can keep people from voting. Um, you have a poll tax where someone has to pay before they taxed, unless then you throw in something called the grandfather clause. Well, you don't have to pay the tax if your grandfather could vote. Well, no black person's grandfather could vote, so then you had to pay the tax. There were literacy tests that you had to pass. Um one areas in I think in uh, Alabama had a voucher system where you needed to have a someone who was already registered to vote to vouch for you that you should be allowed to vote. Right, like there weren't any illiterates in the uh, white people in the South that could vote. Right, you know, and there was large discretion over the county clerk, whoever administered these uh, um, literacy tests. I mean, it, it could be. Uh, you had to interpret a clause of the Alabama Constitution that you had never seen before. You know, that could be a question or it could be something much easier. Uh, so there was a lot of discretion. And basically, it just kept black people from being able to register to vote. And if you can't register, guess where uh, juries come from? Well, they come from mm. voter registration. So we talked about due process. Well, the only due process in the, that a black person is going to get in the South during this period of time is from an all-white jury because there aren't going to be any black people on the jury. So, so by 1880, 1875, the die is cast. Uh, African-Americans <coughs> are going to be at the bottom of the social order politically, um, economically, and there's nothing they can do about it. Uh, they're not going to get due process. They're not going to get the right to vote. They're not going to get equal education. And then in 1898, is it 98? Is Plessy in 98 or 96? 96. 1896. Um, Plessy versus Ferguson is the a Supreme Court case that's going to lay the groundwork for the next, well, 50, 60 years, right? right, right. You want to talk a little bit about Plessy? Uh, in the Plessy well, case? Well, well sure. Uh, Homer Plessy was a black man. I believe he was one-eighth black, I saw something yeah. like that. Wasn't his uh, grandfather was on one side was black? But he went down, and I think it was in Louisiana, and he tried to uh, ride the all-white 
rail car. Now, I think he actually had a ticket, didn't he? Yeah, I think he yeah. did. It was very light skin. You can go see pictures of him online. He, he, anyhow, uh, he was told uh, he had to get off the all-white car, refused, and got arrested and so forth. So they bought this case before the Supreme Court. It's a case of uh, Louisiana law. Uh, clearly, in my, I mean, you know, just from the facts of the case, it denied him uh, a seat on, in that car on the railroad. But the Supreme Court does something a little tricky, as they sometimes do. So, <clears throat> members of the Supreme Court are not too sympathetic to integration. And they say, you know what? He could have ridden on the all black car. Therefore, it's separate. It's a system that's separate. Yes, there's going to be blacks and whites, but they both got rail cars. So they say it's separate but equal. And this decision gets (coughs) applied to schools. (coughs) That's probably the most important thing that happens in the South. And of course, these schools, black and white schools, aren't anywhere near equal. They don't have the same equipment, books, teacher's salary, you know, none of the athletic facilities. But this sort of fiction of separate but equal is allowed to go on for another 50, 60 years. Right. Um, And it is probably the worst Supreme Court case since the Dred Scott case. (laughs) Um, And both of those dealing with race relations. Um, The the idea that the 14th Amendment, when it says equal protection of the law, that somehow you can have separate facilities and have them be equal is a gross distortion of what was the intent of the amendment. But the time period as it was, and this is going to be the law of the land for the next 60 years. So what you're seeing now is you see the South carving out this social order for themselves. And they're also beginning to uh, revise the history of the Civil War almost immediately. In 1866, Ed Pollard uh, from the state of Virginia published a very popular book called The Lost Cause, A New Southern History of the War of the Confederation. And the premise of it was that the South lost the war because they were simply outmanned and outgunned. And the North was playing dirty. They weren't playing fair. They weren't honorable like the South was. And though the the South had a constitutional right to secede and their cause was just, but all of the uh, powers to be were against them. And that slavery was this generous, benign institution, and the slaves were good, faithful servants who were happy to be enslaved. And slavery was now not the central cause of the war, but we start seeing the idea of states' rights. So almost immediately, we see a revision of the war happening uh, in the South. And this revisionism of history is going to dominate um, for decades. Uh, It's going to go well into the 20th century. Uh, In 1894, we're going to get a group called the United Daughters of the Confederacy, um, and they are going to be in charge of putting up Civil War monuments all over the South by the thousands. Um, Textbooks are going to have this lost cause narrative and the idea of states' rights. And these people who are are growing up in the South and post-Civil War are getting a very distorted view of history. Um, Their granddaddies and daddies weren't bad men for owning slaves. They were brave men for defending themselves against a tyrannical government. And no, they couldn't win, but they fought a noble fight. And and it's kind of an odd twist on this. There's a famous quote, like, history is always written by the victors or the winners. In this case, 
it's the losers are writing the history, but they control the area that was that lost. Their their narrative becomes the predominant narrative, right? And what their the South had to do, they had to have an answer for the loss. Um, the I that they lose almost three to four hundred thousand men. Um, they were dying in battlefields all over. Uh, the South, the wasn't a good death. A good death was home, and you're we were surrounded by your families. And how can you legitimize this? How can you ri- raise these people up to be more than what they were? And again, you change the idea for why they fought. Um, you give them a noble cause to fight, and they do. Um, and what you see. Uh, the UDC, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, by the 20th century, have over a hundred thousand members. Um, they have youth organizations that were run after schools where people were memorizing speeches from Confederate um, uh, generals. If you just drive anywhere in the South, you are going to run into a Confederate monument eventually. Oh yeah, any town, any in the courthouse or whatever. And and you know it, you can even look at. Uh, the flag of Mississippi still has a Confederate battle flag as part of its flag, which is very, you, you had to be readmitted to the Union. And I don't know enough about the history of it. I don't know if that was on the flag when they were readmitted. My guess is not. because. Uh, but then I'm guessing it went up in the 1950s during the uh, Civil Rights yeah, Movement. And, and, and that's when actually the flagpoles, uh, uh, like in South Carolina, started uh, putting up the Confederate flag because it, By then, it had come to symbolize resistance uh, to this tyrannical uh, North, uh, both in the Civil War and then later on in the 50s and 60s, when it is the federal government again who has to, at Little Rock, Arkansas, and other places, enforce the 14th and 15th Amendments. That The federal government has to come down here and basically finish the job they didn't do. During Reconstruction, yeah, tell people to be decent. Like you, you have to. It, 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 it the, really this amazes me. And I, I have been teaching history for quite some time, reading history for quite some time, and I've never got the fascination the South has with the Confederacy. How you would want to embrace that history of what you fought for, what it meant after the war, and for the legacy of a hundred years after that of keeping black people systematically denied of their constitutional liberties. I never understood why you'd want to preserve that legacy. And they made it into something that, you know, they made it into something like this was a war for Southern independence, like their forefathers fought for independence. But as we've already mentioned, uh, the they specifically rejected what the framers of the Constitution embraced and that was the idea that all men are created equal. I mean, Stevens in his corner specifically rejects that idea and says, no, no, that's not true. We're based on a different idea. So they, it's not true. And, and let's deal with this idea about states' rights, too. And the, the Southerners, one of the things they were most incensed about before the outbreak of the Civil War is that oftentimes the slaves, their escaped property, would get up north— and the Northerners wouldn't return them. I mean, this happened near here in, 
uh, a place called Christiana, Pennsylvania, where there's a Christiana riots where... Well, now uh, it's the resistance. It's not the result. Uh, oh, the riots? Now. Okay. But anyhow, I mean, a slave owner and a son came to return to get their escaped slaves, and they got shot. And then it, it, they were eventually tried in Philadelphia, and uh, almost everybody was acquitted because... Pennsylvanians didn't have slaves. We didn't, you know, they didn't believe in slavery. So the idea of states' rights for them is not quite honest either. Because if they believed in states' rights, why would they think a Pennsylvania wants to return their property? We're a different state. Don't we have a right to that? And they say, no. They say, no. They were mad at the federal government for not enforcing that. So I disagree, you know, with their arguments. And again, it's, it's it's an awful history. And when I was young, I lived in the South during a time where things were still segregated. I lived on an army base, uh, the the first institution uh, in a a big institution, American, uh, that was integrated after the Civil War was the the armed services by an order by Truman in in 1948. So I I grew up in a place uh, where I went to school with black kids and Hispanic kids. and, And yet when I stepped off the base in North Carolina, there was still segregation. So I learned at a very early age about segregation. And because I grew up in, in, in the military, it seemed very odd to me. It seemed like a very strange institution. Um, but that's the way it was. And, and, uh, and again, this idea has come, this idea of the, uh, of the noble Southerners was finally made its way into the national media too, the whole national consciousness, because um, of the the first movie that sort of glorified and and glamorized the Confederate cause was Birth of a Nation, yep. and and that showed the Southern soldiers as as heroes and and the returning Southern soldiers uh, who started the Klan and uh, and scared. Uh, black people away from voting and stuff. They were heroes in that movie, The Birth of the Nation. And later on, much more broadly, uh, Gone with the Wind shows that that shows the glamorization uh, probably at its best. So you had these uh, beautiful homes, these wonderfully beautiful women uh, and, and gorgeous dresses. And, you know, uh, uh, Scarlett O'Hara has her, her slaves, but you know they're kind of they're they're just kind of maids. Right. You don't see any of them get beat or try to escape, and, uh, and 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 there you really have sort of now the main now this has become a mainstream uh, Hollywood myth through Gone with the Wind, um, and now we're dealing still dealing with this uh, this glamorization of the South. Uh, and and this revisionist history because some people have challenged it and tried to get rid of statues of the Confederates to various places. Right. I will tell you that my opinion is is the statues need to come down. Um, they should never have been put up to begin with. Uh, this idea that we're not preserving our history if we take statues down to me is is a bullshit argument. That's like telling Germany that you're not preserving your history. You're not going to remember the Nazis unless you leave the Nazi statues up. Somehow you're going to forget that horrible part of your past. Somehow we're supposed to leave up these statues of Lee and Longstreet. Um, and well, I don't think there's too many of Longstreet. No, that's true. <laughs> they, they, they did not like Longstreet. No, because, by the end. Right, because he had told Lee— well, he had challenged Lee during right. the Civil War, and later on he became a Republican and a, and a supporter of 
Reconstruction, and that was unforgivable. I'm not sure there's a statue of Longstreet in the South now. But Lee is everywhere. Lee is um, everywhere. Um, you, when you drive down 95, you can go by the Stonewall Jackson Shrine. It's not even a statue. It's called literally called the Shrine. Um, these things should have never been put up to begin with. They're putting them up was a distortion of history. Um, you know who killed more Americans than Nazis? The Confederate States of America can fill, killed more American soldiers than the Nazis did. I don't understand it. Um, now, I'm also pragmatic. I don't think that we whitewash everything completely. I know that there's a lot of military bases that are named after Southern generals. Um, and I think that- I that, lived on one, Fort Bragg. Yeah. I think that would be kind of silly to change the name of Fort Bragg at this point. And just being pragmatic, everybody knows it as Fort Bragg. Um, I live there. I think they should change it to Fort Hudson. <laughs> I don't think they're going to do that. No, I'll, I'll put in the paperwork. Okay. I'll talk to Bob Senator Bob Casey. But So I, I'm, I'm of the believer that all the statues should come down. They should never have been put up to begin with. Well, it's I, distortion I, I, of history. I, I, all the statues in like courthouses or public parks- now, you don't think on a battlefield like Gettysburg, the Confederate statue should come down, do you? I'm I'm torn on that one. When yeah. I um I, I here's why I say I don't think they should have been put up, but I don't know if they should come down. I don't know if a traitor who is fighting for the cause of slavery should have a huge statue of himself put on a statue as if he's some sort of freaking hero. I just you know I understand that there was a probably done before a spirit of reconciliation that we need to come together as a nation and we need to put this behind oh, they, us. Yeah, they, they used to have reenactments were initially a way uh, to get these two sides together. And there's very poignant uh, uh, um, uh, pictures, even moving pictures mm-hmm. of, of the Southerners and the Northerner guys who were at, ba- at various places, Chickamauga and Gettysburg, and they're hugging each other. And and uh, I, get, I don't think they called them reenact. I think they called them in camp. Yes. And and uh, so I think the the most famous one and the Ken Burns shows it when they when they have the guys, the Southerners coming up um pick his charge yes. and the Northerners on the other side of the stone wall there and they get up there and they everybody feels bad because you know, fifty years ago they're trying to kill each other and right. and now they're uh, they're Americans. Um, and I do appreciate the reconciliation of sides. Right, right. And, that's th- and that's a part of reconstruction you said worked. Yeah, it is. But I, like I said, on the battlefields, I don't think those statues should have been put up, but I would not be in favor of bringing them down because I do think they serve a historical purpose on a battlefield at this point. Uh, though on public squares, that's a no-brainer to me. Obviously, they should come down. What's your opinion? Well, you know, I, as a history teacher and, and you know, government teacher, I would I would like to think that – those statues had enough significance to anybody to actually feel like they're being uh, oppressed by them. I'm I'm not sure nowadays that there are enough people with interest in history to and there's a sta- there's a statue in your courthouse, you know, in wherever Virginia, or, uh, Alabama. I'm not sure they know who that is. In other words, I'm not sure if I feel it's significant enough to take down now. I think I would agree that none of them should ever have been allowed to be put up. I probably disagree with you about the battlefields because I think on the battlefields you can honor what there is to honor about the Southerners and the the Civil War. This is what Grant wrote in his memoirs about uh, what he felt about Southerners and their cause. He said, I felt like anything rather than rejoicing at the downfall of a foe who had fought so long and valiantly and had suffered so much for a cause. 
So he, he recognized that they're valiant, and they were, a lot of, you know, terribly brave soldiers. But he goes on to say this, though that cause was, I believe, one of the worst for which a people ever fought, and one for which there was the least excuse. So I think on battlefields, I think the statues are appropriate, because what you're honoring is what Grant saw, a valiant soldier. And I think it's okay for Southerners to take pride that, you know, if they have ancestors that were brave and fought for what at the time they believed uh, was a good cause. I, I do feel very much differently about th- those statues in public squares and near courthouses were designed to tell a different version of than what really happened. And they were designed to say, look, we're in charge now. We're in charge right. now. The, the way we're back in charge and we're putting our heroes there. And they were designed to intimidate black people and putting, putting up Confederate flags near courthouse. It was the same thing. So I do feel differently about them. I think you can do one of two things. You could take those down or you could put a plaque on them if anybody wants to come over there and say when the statue was put up and mention the history of what was going on in that town or that area during that time. Because that would be the era of Jim Crow when they were put up. That would be uh, later the institution of Jim Crow. It would be the later the resistance to the civil rights movement. So you make you make the statue and actually a, a learning experience. So they go, okay, that's a Southern soldier, but the reason he's here is this for this telling of a fanciful tale. Now that would be easier than removing them, maybe putting a plaque. I, I don't know. I, I'm okay. The ones on the battlefield, I'm fine with. The, I do. I, the other ones are problematical. I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't been to Germany. Uh, you know, I, th- I do think it would probably shock to American if there was a picture of or a, mon- a monument someplace of people in the Waffen SS and they were mar- just marching. I mean, not even shooting or and and, and you know. People don't don't like the analogy, but you know, obviously, uh, white supremacy was what the Nazis promoted right. as well. So, yeah, I, I think you have to take this seriously. Again, uh, leave them up on the battlefields if they're in a museum. That's fine. Eh, I'm okay with a plaque on the other ones. It's got to be something. Just right. leaving them up and say, yeah, that's the way it was, and these guys are great. And if you take it down, somehow we're forgetting our history. No. That's just stupid. That's a that's a that's an unintelligent argument. That the idea that if we don't have a statue to it, somehow we're not going to remember it. Right. I tell you what, we don't remember. We don't remember slavery. One of the things I've been shocked by as a, as a history teacher all these years, and of course, you and I have both taken many many trips uh, to the Holocaust Museum because we teach World War II, and it's, a, it's such a and the Holocaust Museum is this you know uh, great retelling of the story of the Holocaust and how it's. How it began initially when you go through the top floor, and then yes. how with how the Jews were gradually segregated, and then how uh, after Hitler came in power, they became more and more sinister. Till finally, there was the effort at, at extermination. But what we don't have, what we've never faced up to, and and partly because of this re- retelling of Southern history, we never f- we've never faced up to the reality of slavery. Oh no. And it's, I think that's terrible, too, because Lincoln did. Lincoln did in his speeches, finally. And he, when he says in his second inaugural address that basically 
this war has been terrible, more terrible than either side. And and we both pled to God, and God didn't answer either one of our prayers. And he, and and you know, to as a message to the 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 people he is leading in the union, he says, I. But you know, maybe slavery was such a horrible sin that this had to happen. I mean, that's if you go read it. He, he obviously says things more eloquently. Uh, uh, than I do. So we have faced it at times, but we have never faced it. I would love to see a slavery museum. I would love to see one. Uh, not, not, you know, because of any kind of interest I have in, in just retelling an awful story, but I don't think Americans know that story. No. Just like a lot of Americans don't know the Holocaust story. And sl- the Holocaust story, even though it, it affects many Americans, it's actually the history of Europe that happened in, in, in Europe. Uh, the slavery happened here, and I think that's why we can't have. It's harder to have the museum. Well, walk around D.C. and there were slave houses in D.C. There were slave auctions in D.C. They marched slaves past the Capitol in chains. You walk around D.C. today, you will see a monument to almost everything, a plaque to almost everything. I challenge you to find a plaque somewhere in D.C. that talks about this is the this is a place where slave auctions took place. This is a place where slaves were housed. I couldn't find it the last time I was there, and I look for it. It's it's we've never dealt with our national sin. It's starting a little bit. I know in Monticello, Monticello, uh, they now have a place where there was a public bathroom. It's a it's a room that was next to Jefferson's bed bedroom. Uh, they are presenting that as the possible dwelling place of his black mistress, Sally Hemings. There are some plantations now that have tried to restore a um, the slave quarter area. So instead of just the, visiting the big, gone with the wind, beautiful right. mansion, you can see w- the labor where what the where the people lived who did the labor to support that that lifestyle. So there's beginnings here and there, but I'd love to see the story told. The Holocaust Museum is great. such right. so great because it tells the story. And I would like to see the story starting with the Spanish and the Portuguese bringing slaves. I mean, the whole story. I mean, and even including the fact that there were a few uh, freed black people that owned slaves. You could put that in there. But I think if people really saw it, and they would understand the whole history of the United States so much better. And they would understand, because the pivotal point of, of our history is the Civil War. And unless you really know what that's, what slavery was and, and the extent of it and how cruel it was and how much it dehumanized people uh, and how much of it, it was in violation of our creed that all men are created equal— I don't think you can understand that pivotal event, and that leaves you ignorant of American history. As an American, you should feel a sense of shame for slavery. And I tell people that, and the response I usually get is, well, I wasn't responsible for it. Why should I feel a sense of shame for something that I wasn't responsible for? And my retort to that is, well, do you feel pride in the men who stormed the beaches at Normandy? Do you feel pride for the men who fought fought across Europe uh, during World War II? And well, what the hell did you have to do with that? Did you were you beside them at Normandy? Like, why do you get to feel pride for what you had nothing to do with, but you shouldn't feel a sense of shame and responsibility for something you you didn't have anything to deal with? I believe that if you're an American, you have to accept our history as a whole. 
And yes, there's so much to be proud of for what we did, but we also have this national sin that we simply have never dealt with. And I think until we truly do deal with that sin, I think that we as a people are still going to continue to be divided because there's part of us, I think, that are kind of stuck there. I mean, you think about our history this way, if you go all the way back to the 1600s, for 350 years of our nation's history, it was legal to own black people. It was legal to discriminate against black people. For 350 years, your government was legally against, you could legally discriminate or own black people. It's only been about 50 years of legal equality. That's a huge statement to make that we've only had 50 years of legal equality out of 350 years since our nation has been founded since Jamestown. Um, I don't know what the answer is. I get frustrated with it because I think that not that there needs to be this outpouring of guilt and that everyone, but we don't even seem to take it into consideration. It's something we, we whitewash it to the point where I think Ed Pollard would be happy when he wrote A Lost Cause. I think that if he could look today and th- see how we view slavery today, I would say he thinks he'd won. Yeah. He won, he won they, the revision. They, they, they changed the narrative. And what's interesting to me too is people go, well, you're just talking about white guilt. That's what you want. You want to, you know, you want to make white people feel guilty. And you know what? I want people to understand American history. And in a previous podcast, I, I talked about two young men from Minnesota, uh, John and Isaac Taylor, who were brothers and who made a charge at Gettysburg in the second day. And their unit lost 82 percent of of their members. Uh, and uh, John lost his brother Isaac. Isaac's now buried at the cemetery uh, where Lincoln that Lincoln dedicated in his Gettysburg address. All right, I want you to remember those guys. They, you know, they fought for something that was right. That's not white guilt. I wanted. To, I think when you ignore slavery and you ignore that as the the, the central. Uh, a battle in our history and the central event in our history. I think you do a little dishonor to the the brave young white men. Most of them farmers. Most of them did not profit from slavery, but through their sacrifice, helped end it. I don't. I don't necessarily that thinking about the reality of slavery promotes white guilt. It promotes a recognition that this was a great wrong, and it took tremendous efforts to end it. And that effort continues today. And for me, you can be on the right side of this. And the right side to me is you you believe that all men are created equal. Do you believe in the declaration or you don't? And on on that side, which I think is the right side, is lots of women, uh, you know, lots of Hispanics, lots of, I'm sure, most African Americans, and lots of white men too. And they have fought... So I don't I don't view it quite through that that lens uh, that some people. Oh, you're just talking about white guilt. No, I'm not. I'm not just talking about that. Well, I like the way you put that. I think that's a great place to end the podcast. I think you spoke very well for both of us there about placing history in its proper context, understanding our history. Um, that finishes up the four-part podcast on slavery uh, and the legacy of slavery and the legacy of the Civil War. I hope you guys enjoyed it. We will be back next week uh, with some of our normal fare on politics and looking at some contemporary issues. So thanks a lot for joining us this time, and we'll see you next week. Bye.